0: Cop Talk, Talking Crime, Cases, and Backing the Blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mehmet and Detective Kevin Schroeder.
1: Good afternoon. Today's segment will feature retired Chief of Patrol, former Deputy Commissioner of Training for the New York City Police Department, former Commissioner of Traffic, and a great friend and a great guy, Bill Chapman. Good afternoon, Bill. Good
2: afternoon, Ed, Kevin. Good to see you both of you. Good
1: afternoon, hey, Bill. Bill you, thank you for coming. Bill, can you give us some of your background before we get into you know the nitty gritty? Because you're such an interesting, illustrious figure.
2: Well, because I couldn't hit a curveball and uh, play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, I decided to try a, a different color blue. The NYPD, which was the best move I ever made in my life, started in 1968, working in patrol. In the two-three, was lucky enough to pass a couple. Had a couple of good Saturdays. Got to rose to the rank of captain. Worked in the PCS office as the exec. Was the CO of the eight-one in the one-thirteen precinct. Got to be CO of the twelfth division in Crown Heights. Then the CO of uh, Patrol Borough Manhattan North. And after a brief stop in Manhattan North, became the chief of patrol for three and a half years with the greatest bunch of people I've ever worked with. After being the chief of patrol, Mayor Giuliani wanted me to have the Department of Transportation, which was in a state of disarray. And I spent two years over there trying to figure out how we can make the city more accessible for vehicles, pedestrians and tourists. Got bored with that, went to Bridgeport for five years to be the chief of police up there. And Ray Kelly called me after my fifth year in Bridgeport and asked me to come back and take my 30 years of NYPD experience and apply it to training and became the deputy commissioner of training for four years until I found out people were telling me I worked with their grandfather. And then I figured it was time for me to go after that.
1: And here you are today. Now, as I recall, you met Ray Kelly when you were a young cop working in the 2-5 or the 2-3? The 2-3. I,
2: I was fortunate enough to have two guys who rose in the department being my direct supervisors. The first one was Ray Kelly who came up as a new Sergeant and he had a, another chief of guy who eventually became the chief of patrol, Bob Gianelli as his driver. And Kelly was really a great influence because he was one of those supervisors that acted like a cop, but gave leadership. And he was a great role model for me. And then when he left, there was a guy that people might remember, David W. Scott, who became the first deputy commissioner, came in as a lieutenant, and Lieutenant Scott grabbed me to be his driver and his 124 man, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. But between Kelly and Scott, I think I learned more about the job and how to do it the right way than from any other time in my career.
1: Well, you worked for two great guys. You know, I knew Ray Kelly almost my entire career. We were sergeants at the same time. We came up the same lieutenant's list and uh, i know him very well and uh, you know the other guy you mentioned also i knew very well so you worked dave scott was a great guy i think he came off the same lieutenant's list as i did also but he was an outstanding figure and i remember he, he was the chief of patrol for a while yes
2: right? yes he was and then the ben ward yes
1: the ben ward and then he became chief of department under Lee
2: Brown, yeah
1: right So you have a terrific background, and that's why we wanted you on the show today. Your background is quite diverse. And the major topic that we're concerned about today, and you're the right guy for it, is the problem of recruitment and retention. As you know, police are leaving an unprecedented rate, not only in New York City, but all over the country. And a lot of people don't want the job. So we'd like you to talk about that because of your vast experience in recruitment You were an applicant investigation, you were a director of training, and you are the someone who really would uh, be able to tell us what's going on. So can you elaborate on that? Well,
2: if we can roll back time to when the three of us were much younger people. In 1984, Ray Kelly, who was at that time commanding Officer of OMAP, talked to Commissioner Ben Ward. And they were complaining about the way people were recruited and retained and processed through the applicant processing division. In fact, they had 29 lawsuits against the department at the time. And Kelly reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in going and doing an analysis of the recruitment and hiring and then report back to him and Commissioner Ward what the results were. So I spent about six and a half, seven months looking at the way we recruited, how we retain people and how we process them for hire And realized that we had some systemic failures. You know, you and I have been along around a long time. I've worked for 12 police commissioners, 13 if you count Kelly twice, and only three of them were really interested in recruiting quality people. Recruitment was always a low priority in the department. It, It only happened when there was a great need, and then we flooded people through the process. And for every 100 people we recruited, we only hired 10. So we wasted time on 90 people that were not qualified or not interested in being police officers recruitment is a key to making your department substantial and better you have to recruit the best possible people you can because if not you're going to put people out with the with the power of life and death and with great responsibility who aren't capable of doing the job and i think that's part of the problem the other big part of the problem is the fact that we have people who are in elected positions who don't feel about the police the way they should, that we are here to protect all of the law-abiding people from that small minority that are involved in criminal activity. And when, when you have elected officials who are responsible for hiring police commissioners and police chiefs who aren't interested in improving the quality of people coming into the department, you wind up with street corner recruitment, You wind up with people coming in who really aren't fit for the job or aren't suited for police work because it's very stressful and dangerous, and they leave in vast numbers. Add to that a political class of folks who are just anti-police and are either speaking out of ignorance or hatred, and you, you diminish the number of people that are interested in policing. And where we've gone wrong over the years is we haven't gone out and brought and attracted those people who are really best qualified and best suited for police work. We've done a, a way of blanketing large number of people or addressing fake issues and saying we need more diversity. No, we don't need more diversity. We need more quality. And if you get quality, as we found out in the 1993 recruitment drive that Ray Kelly supervised, you will get diversity because there are smart people and people who would make good police officers in all racial groups It's just identifying them, attracting them and bringing them into the system. And that's been the failure universally across the board. We wait until we're really depleted and then we try to do a hurry up and you can't do that. Becoming a police officer isn't a civil right. It isn't something that's a guarantee. It's a very, it's an honorable position and it's a position where people who come into it should be expected to pay the ultimate sacrifice, which they can, and are dedicated to making society better. And until there's a universal acceptance of that, particularly in the political community, that, that detracts from us, we're not going to see an improvement. We went out in 1992 and 93 under Ray Kelly. We got 54,000 people to sign up for the police department tech, including 5,600 veterans that had just been discharged from the military on the Desert Storm. It was probably the best qualified list never assembled. Most of those people were college educated, a lot of them had extensive work backgrounds, and then you had a change in administration and that list was thrown out. And then we went back to street corner recruiting. And that's why we have the problem we have now. And that's why most departments have the problem, because they're not doing ongoing recruitment and looking to get the best out of society instead of just getting numbers in for an example.
1: What's your opinion on on the quality problem of retention? Now, ever since George Floyd, has been a major problem retaining people. People are quitting in droves. What's your opinion on that? But on the political level, too. Well,
2: yeah, I have a daughter who's a police officer. And, you know, well, we can go back to the days of Mayor Lindsay, And, and, and you know, people talk about morale. And morale, I can't remember even when we got our back checks or when we got a very little supplement check when we retired where the morale is good. Morale has never been good because... Policing isn't playing for the New York Yankees. Policing is a tough place. And the only people you can really count on are those who work with you. We don't retain because we don't treat our police officers with the respect that they deserve. And that's an internal problem from management, from the chief level, from the elected official level. Police officers are the best in society. And if you don't pay them that way, and if you don't treat them that way, there's a real problem. Let me give you one one historical example that just shows th- that police officers were disregarded. There was a time when I was chief of patrol when the precincts were starting to fall apart because they were all buildings and they weren't being replaced. And PBA delegates were coming to me saying, you know, we don't have toilet paper in the precincts. Yet a chief who was inside one PP and probably never left unless he was going home was having his office and complex wood panels with new carpet. That shows a mindset, and and I'm not saying it's universally the same. but the reality is if you don't think about your police officers who are out there every day and you equip them the best you can and you pay them the best you can, they're gonna look for other opportunities. During, when I did the hiring, there were always that group of people that lived on Long Island that said, I'm just taking this job until Nassau or Suffolk County Police call Why? Because they pay better and they treat their cops better. You have to treat your officers with respect because they're the backbone of the department. That's not happening. They've taken away qualified immunity. They pay them like entry-level peasants. When you do that, you're showing a disrespect for police officers, and you can't expect them to want to stick around and be abused.
0: Kevin, do you have any points you want to make? When I, I came on January of 1985, we had 2,500 guys I, and girls. I, in the room. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry? I made no a yeah. Kevin, in getting you. Good. No, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So we had a big class. And back then, like you said, Bill, you know, guys and girls maybe left, maybe lost 10, 15% due to Suffolk County, Nassau County, you know, going for more pay. Maybe the community treated them better than the city, you know, folks were at the time. But today, day and age, the classes are down to five, 600, maybe 500, and there's guys and girls quitting not to go to national stuff or go to the fire department. They're just quitting to go to another career because they're done with it. Why? Because the manpower is down, so everybody's being forced to work overtime. No one gets a day off now. Back in my day, I loved overtime, but today's day and age, it's a little different. I mean, I have a son on a job as well, and they love the overtime because they got to pay bills, and but they can't get a day off, and, and it's just it's, and the morale is horrible. And everyone's overworked, over, you know, understaffed, and it's a shame. So today, again, you know, you're losing 10 or 15%, not just to go to Nassau and Suffolk County or the fire department, basically just quitting and going to work at Home Depot or wherever. And that's what I think is going on right now with the well, recruitment and the retention.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Kevin. When I came back to be the deputy commissioner of training, well, let me go back. When I was chief of patrol, I was handed a gift, 5,000 officers. Nobody liked David Dinkins as the mayor. But he was responsible for the 5,000 cops that came on who really made a difference and made Bill Bratton and uh, ComStat a success. What happened after that, because I had 21,000 people when I was the chief of patrol, when I came back in 2007 as the deputy commissioner of training, Bob Giganelli, who was a cop with me and drove Ray Kelly, was the chief of patrol. Bob came in, sat down in in the office with me, and he said, You know how many cops I have on patrol? I have no clue. 13,000. So the level on patrol had dropped from 21,000 to 13,000. And I looked to see what the history of that was. And unfortunately, when Mayor Bloomberg took over, the police department was functioning really tremendously in reducing crime, continuing continuing that crime reduction from from when Comstat started in 1994-95. And Bloomberg would say at each state of the city, well, I'm rewarding the police department, Commissioner Kelly would like more cops, but we're cutting the headcount. And he cut the headcount each time we reduced crime. Now, I'm not faulting the mayor, and I understand his point of view, which was, hey, wait a minute, if crime is going down, we don't need as many cops. Well, that's not true because then Kevin can't get a day off and he gets burned out because he's got to do four hours extra overtime at the end of each tour. and Instead of putting out seven or eight sectors in a precinct, you're putting out four or five. You're not giving the people the service that they're paying for. You're not giving cops an opportunity to take a deep breath because they're running around chasing 9/11 jobs. And as a result, what you're running up against is a department that is functioning beyond its ability, and you burn people out, and they don't want to stay. I mean, what we really seem, what we really seem to get away from, is the fact that you can't run a department based upon, well, if they're successful, less is more. That's not the case. Because see now, we don't have enough police office to cover the sectors as they should. We can't put people out on footposts. So we can't do the things they used to do in 1980, from nineteen eighty January 85 through this January of 88. We were hiring 2,000 people every six months. Yeah. When I came back as Deputy Commissioner of Training, we shut down the academy for a year because we weren't hiring anybody because the attitude was, hey, wait a minute, we don't need this many cops. Well, once you start saying you don't need cops, you're making a tactical mistake. And as a result, the cops now have inherited this smaller department. We've had 9-11, which requires a whole new way of doing policing because we have to have a counterterrorism and intelligence division to look to make sure we don't get attacked again, and you still have the needs of patrol. So we haven't been able to replenish our rank. And then we spent eight years with a mayor who ran on a on a platform of hating police and disrespecting them to the point where people are saying, Why should I put up with this? I can go someplace else and make money and support my family and not put my life in jeopardy.
1: That brings me to another point. The current state of the department today. <laughs>
2: Do you really want to go there? No,
1: yeah, of course.
2: Okay. Let's, you know, I'm trying to remember. At some point, we had eight bureau chiefs, and I think nine or ten deputy commissioners. We have something like 14 bureau chiefs now, and over 20 commission deputy commissioners. I would think you could eliminate two thirds of the positions and take that money and hire more cops and put them on the street, because we have increasingly gotten more bureaucratic and hired more people in political positions or made jobs for them, that doesn't exactly work, number one. Number two, you have someone who is in charge of the department who really, I don't think, has been given an opportunity to show what she can do. She's certainly more articulate than the voices at City Hall. She's certainly someone who comes highly respected from her work in Nassau County. And the critics who say she hasn't run a department as large as, as the NYPD, so therefore she isn't qualified, I'd remind all of them that everyone who became the police commissioner came from a smaller entity. So we have to make sure we're looking at that. But we have an issue with the interference from City Hall. We have four members, former members of the department in City Hall. A former chief, a former captain, a former inspector, and a former sergeant. And they can't seem to get out of their way and let the police department be run by the police commissioner. Rudy Giuliani, who was a very hands-on mayor, let both of his police commissioners, Bratton, well, all three of them, Bratton, Safer, and Carrick, run the police department. He was not intimately involved in the everyday functioning of the department. And Rudy Giuliani knew a lot more than the current mayor because he was a former special prosecutor. We have a captain now in place who has done absolutely nothing in his career to distinguish himself, and now all of a sudden he's going to tell people who have far more experience than he has, with his advisors who have very interesting backgrounds, how the book department should be run. I think that frightens and that discourages people from staying in the department. Aside from the major task is they're not protecting people. Crime is up. And they can talk about the number of shootings and homicides going down, Property crime is way up. Assaults against people are way up, and you cannot have a city that's safe that believes in its police and believes in its government if crime is up. If you have, if you don't have public safety, you don't have anything, and that's what's happened in New York. Nothing.
1: I'm sorry, you just made a point that that I have been talking about consistently. As you know, that the department uses the seven major crime index for CompStat purposes. That's laid out by the FBI. Now, most people don't know that the seven major crimes is really an FBI standard that the entire nation, well, the, most of the police departments in the nation, voluntarily go along with. And the current administration keeps talking about murders going down and shooting going down. But what is being disregarded are the other six major crimes that have gone up. And as you all know, that most of these shootings are gang related. And murder was never an index of, you know, a criteria for crime. Robbery, on the street robbery, burglary, auto theft. Those are the measures of true crime. Would you agree? You're
2: making a very good point, Ed. Remember way back in the dark old days before ComStat when we had the borough robbery conferences and the borough commanders yeah. would call the precinct commanders in and ask them, how are your robberies? How are your burglaries? How are your assaults? That's what people are concerned about. The likelihood of people being murdered in New York City is not as great as the likelihood of people being robbed or their houses being burglarized or their cars being stolen. That's how you measure the level of violence. And the the reality simply is it hasn't been addressed. And it can only be addressed by having effective patrol and not playing these games with renaming units and trying to placate the noisy voices that are anti-police and not call things what they should be. We need plainclothes, anti-crime people who have the advantage of stealth out on the street to interdict guns and to prevent those people who are going to commit crime from doing it through omnipresence. We used to, right after 9-11, put people with heavy weapons in commercial districts. Not only would that prevent or discourage terrorism, it would discourage the people who are now breaking into businesses without any concern whatsoever from doing so. They serve as a visible deterrent. We don't have that anymore. And when the seven index crimes are discounted and saying, well, we took X number of guns off the street, well, that doesn't help the person who's just been robbed at night point.
0: Correct. Now, Kevin has a background in anti-crime. Kevin, Mm -hmm. why don't you speak a little to that? So I was an anti-crime in Midtown North Priest in Midtown Manhattan 1989 to 1993. Back then, you could only stay in the detail for four years and you had to move on. So, Corruption, crone, et cetera. With that said, we concentrated on, we worked plain clothes and we concentrated on pickpockets. We made observation pickpocket arrests, observation robberies arrest. You couldn't do that today because you, now you're in uniform or wearing a, a windbreaker. You can't do that. They took away the anti crime, the plain clothes, just like the street crime. So now the pickpockets are having fun now in Midtown, I'm sure, with all the tourists, etc., cetera, and the Broadway shows. And again, we did observation arrests. We didn't work off the radio. We've made some great felony arrests because we're in plain clothes and we're able to mingle and get deep and make the arrest. Well, observation, you know, you can't do that today.
2: And that's unfortunate. When I was the CEO of the 8-1, the, the thing that I hated most was the fact when you guys in anti-crime had finished your four years, I had to replace you. And it was really difficult because your best cops are in anti-crime and they do the best work. And then to po- move them on, and you're almost punishing them. I understand the corruption and all the other stuff that was associated with a small group of folks. But when you have competent police officers who know the neighborhoods they're working in, know who the perps are, and are effective, you want them to last and be as effective as long as possible. And that was, you know, that isn't necessary. You know, that doesn't happen. As a chief right. of patrol, I had street crime under me. And I remember a captain by the name of Dick Savage, who was the CEO of street crime. And Dick said, I don't want to be promoted. I just want to stay here with my 138 cops and continue to do the good work they're doing. They took more guns off the street than all of patrol combined. They were an extremely effective unit. And because of stupid managerial practices, and I can say it now because I've been silent for a long time about it, they (laughs) expanded from 138 to 500 people because they convinced the police commissioner that if 138 people can take X number of guns, off the street. By quadrupling that number, you'll take quadruple numbers off the street. No. Dick Savage and the the street crime crew really looked at the best anti-crime people like you, Kevin, throughout the city and said, these are the people we want to work for us because they will be effective. They were put back in neighborhoods that they knew and they were allowed to go out and do the job of taking guns off the street. When they quadrupled the unit, they took four guys who had never been in the Bronx before and put them up in a place that they were totally unfamiliar with. And as a result, you had the shooting of Amadou Diallo. One of the cops involved was my neighbor. And this poor guy couldn't find his way to the Bronx. He was a terrific Brooklyn North cop. But he couldn't find his way to the Bronx because he never worked there. You can't do that and expect, you can't put people in places where they're not going to function the most efficiently and get the most out of them. You cannot disband the entire street crime unit because of one incident. You know, they had a a shooting in the Bronx where they thought they saw a burglar and they fired 136 shots and killed a bag of potato chips. And it was never publicized because the people in the Bronx were so happy that street crime worked in their neighborhood that they said, okay, so they killed a bag of potato chips. That's not important. What's important is... Our 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 community can walk out in safety because we know these guys are out there taking guns off the street. You know, look at what we've got every day now. Every day we have a high caliber, high publicity crime. Why? Because we're not doing the basics, and we've gotten away from it, and that's unfortunate.
1: One of the big problems that the department is facing we have an out of control city council. <laughs> they passed. Through- they, they passed the chest compression law, they took away qualified immunity. How does a cop make an arrest if you can't use your hands? You know, I'm sure this is a big problem where cops don't know what to do. You struggle with the guy, and you got to worry: am I going to crush him? Am I, I going to have a chest compression? You know, and then the qualified immunity is scaring the hell out of everybody. So there's no support from the city council. Well,
2: if we have some self-inflicted injuries too. You know, let me get to the city council in a second, because I have a lot of complimentary things to say about those folks. But the reality is, if you remember when they started taking action against the chest compression, they had a video that was put out by the training bureau of seven or eight minutes telling you exactly what you could not do. That is not what training is about. You don't tell cops what they can't do. You give them instructions so they can do their job more efficiently. Not say you know, this was put out by lawyers to do CYA, to make sure that they reduce lawsuits. This was not there to protect cops or to get them to handle perps in a more delicate way if we need to do that. If you break the law, you're on your own. Whatever happens to you beyond that is a self-inflicted wound and you shouldn't go crying later, well, the police officer didn't give me his business card or whatever. You know, that's the insanity that, that's been created now in a group of elected officials that get media time, and they're clearly influencing the dynamic between how the police should function and the real needs of the community. I had two precincts in all black communities, the 81 and the 113. And if you went out there and you closed your eyes, they would sound the same way that if you went to a completely white community in Staten Island. They said the same thing. We want our police to be effective. We want our police to feel close to the community and protect us, and we want to make sure that when we call the police, we get the proper response. Those are not the people you're hearing now. They're the silent majority. What you're hearing now are for these folks that want to defund the police. Kelly, in his infinite wisdom, had a day of inviting the city council to the range to show them how we were preparing people in the best way we could in terms of firearm training, because there was a lot of criticism of the council then. And they're not nearly as wacky as this council is now. This is 2008. And one of the bright lights there, who is now a highly elected city official, said, I don't understand why the police don't shoot to wound people. Why don't you shoot them in the leg or in the shoulder, (laughs) forgetting completely what the purpose of using the firearm is. And after it was explained to him, he said, I still don't get it. You should try. So I gave him this simple scenario. Okay, I try to shoot this individual who's committed a robbery in the subway in the arm, and I miss. And I kill three innocent bystanders because the the round I fired at him doesn't hit a vital organ and doesn't hit center mass and slow him down. And he looked at me and he said, train your people better. And he's an elected official now that is affecting policy in the city of New York. New Yorkers need to think about who they vote for and how they vote for. This is a seven to one Democratic city and a Republican lost the mayoralty by a two to one margin in a city that's seven to one Democrat. That tells you either the Democrats aren't thinking they are tired of this rhetoric that they're hearing or that perhaps people are just disinterested because their elected officials don't represent them. And the elected officials need to realize that they are responsible for the increase in crime, not the lack of police officers on the street. You know,
1: you hit upon another point yesterday. In yesterday's news, I believe the president said that the police should be better trained and that they should not shoot. What what was the word? Less use, less deadly. Now, when I came into the police department way back in 1959, we were taught to fire everything we had at once and shoot to kill. That was the mantra at the time, shoot to kill, fire every, all six shots, because we had revolvers, and don't even aim, just point and shoot. Then it changed, I think under Ray Kelly, it changed to shoot to stop the threat, yeah. and now that's the that's the standard now. Now, this balloon says, now we should not use any force. Well, how, do, how does a police officer make an arrest when you're dealing with a violent criminal and you can't use any type of force? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's what we have to deal with what cops have to deal with today. It's coming right from the White House.
2: Well you, you have to realize that people who have not done policing don't understand what we do and how we do it. You're not out there to be a referee and decide whether you know whether the perp and the arresting officer are, are, are fighting by Marcus of Queensberry rules. You know you're out there to protect the good people, and to remove those people who were involved in criminal activity from society. And that's not easy, you know. Hello, Mr. drug dealer. Please don't, you know, deal your drugs today, and if you don't mind get in the car and put these handcuffs on. That's not the way it works. And people don't understand that. Those folks who watch all of this excitement where they, you know, solve a homicide on TV in an hour or, you know, y- y- you have these wonderful romanticized police officers who are in these fictional stories That's not the reality of the world. The reality of the world simply is there are people out there doing harm. And police officers fire to stop the threat. But they also fire Stenford mass. You had a six-shooter as I did. And I remember my firearms instructor saying, because we were put out right after there were, were major riots in the city, you got six shots. If you don't take down your target in six shots, then you don't deserve to be a cop. Because you should shoot well enough to stop that threat. And what does that mean? That doesn't mean shoot them in the arm or shoot them in the leg. You know, you hit people in the arm and the leg with a knife stick. You shoot people center mass because you stop their threat. And if you can't understand that, then perhaps you shouldn't be in elected office. You know, that's a reality. And I don't get too excited about anything that an 80-year-old man says, because I'm almost 80 and I don't pay any attention to some of the things I say. So I don't worry. <laughs> I, I, I understand this need for people to think that You know, there are police who aren't serving the communities as well they should, and that's our self-inflicted wound. We have people in policing that don't belong. Maybe it's good that some of them leave, but the reality is the vast majority of people who put on that uniform every day and go out to protect their communities are darn good people who are out there trying to do the best to keep their communities safe. And if they have to use deadly physical force, then they should be given the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise.
0: Bruno, he's your numero uno.
1: And I'd like to go into one final topic before we end up. And I think this is very appropriate for you because you ran a smaller agency in Bridgeport, so you have the experience of you know working in a major, the largest agency in the United States. The situation in Cambridge, you're aware of what happened recently. I think it goes back to Obama's time when that professor got arrested for disorderly conduct. And then, you know, he had that beer summit with the cop. He, he criticized the cop immediately. And now we have this other major incident in, in Cambridge. And I'm sure that the Cambridge Police Department, they must be having a problem handling something like in New York City. He was very experienced in handling these crises. What's your opinion of the situation in Cambridge? Using, falling back on your experience with Bridgeport, Connecticut.
2: Well, it was unfortunate. I went to Bridgeport under Mayor Joe Gannam, who wanted to reform the Bridgeport Police Department. They were the second, they were the largest city in, in, in Connecticut, and they had the largest municipal police department. Unfortunately, when you get outside of the New York City Police Department, policing takes a major step down in many of these municipalities. Bridgeport did not have the entry level requirements didn't have the scope of training and had supervisors that really didn't supervise as well as they should have, as well as their titles were that were given to them. I had 550 officers. I had four deputy chiefs and nine captains. I ran a precinct with 550 officers as a captain with another captain. So obviously they were top heavy, but none of these people, Knew about policing the way we do in New York. As much as we may get jaded about the department and concerned about what's right and what's wrong and the fact that the media exposes every little thing we do wrong, a sergeant from the NYPD with a with a monicum of experience could be a chief in one of these other towns. They just don't have the ability to deal with the high-level problems that we've had in New York. They're not they're not trained in how to be leaders. They have different ideas of patrol. And they're really, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate a lot of them do a good job within the scope of their knowledge, but they could certainly use better training. They could certainly use better leadership. And unfortunately, they're more influenced, just as the NYPD was influenced by eight years of Bill de Blasio, a disaster. A lot of these small towns are driven by whatever the prerogatives of the mayor or the, or the first selectmen are. So they really don't have, you know, they don't have the ability to be judged the way we judge our department. And that's a problem. There are a lot of officers I had in Bridgeport as, as there are any the other in, in the other small departments like that that want to learn, that want to do a good job and do an excellent job. But the problem there is their lack of funding. To get the appropriate training, their lack of a recruitment structure that will bring in people that will upgrade the level of their efficiency, and the political community that can sway one way or the other. And that's a really difficult situation. I went back in 2015 to be the, the senior advisor to Mayor Ganem again for public safety and kind of reorganize the police department, the fire department, emergency services to get them to work in sync. And looking at them, you would go back and say, hey, that's New York City in the 1970s. They have a long way to go. And that's what the the difficulty with these smaller departments. They don't have the access to the knowledge that we've had in New York or the experience that we have in New York to upgrade the skills and the professionalism of the department. And as a result, when a tragedy hits, they are not as well prepared to deal with it.
1: Regarding the shooting in Cambridge, if you were the chief of police in Cambridge, how would you handle this? (laughs) Now, my understanding is this was not a racial kind of shooting. I believe that a lot of the problems stir up, as you all know, when a, a black person is shot by a white cop, you know, Sharpton and people like that, they all jump out before the investigation is finished. I mean, you know, the, the poor cop is guilty. I think the situation there is, is different, but it's still a problem up there. How would you handle that situation if you were the well, chief?
2: Number one, you would invite all those people from the outside who come in and have these brilliant thoughts and make prejudgments to stand down number 1 now sure you have an, you know, an objective mechanism usually those kinds of situations there's an independent investigation so it's beyond it's beyond the control of the chief to do anything other than to make a statement other than we're going to continue to deliver police services as best we can we're going to get to the bottom of it and we will go where the truth takes us and that's the only thing that's the only thing you can do other than doing that you're prejudging and you're setting up a situation where it becomes us and them. The reality is the police still have to continue to function and the community still has to live and respect with the police. As I say, it's a marriage where there's no divorce. So whatever the issue is and the, the terms and the conditions of the investigations result, that's what will be followed. In the meantime, there should be no rush to judgment and we should go on living in the community as we have before this incident. We're cognizant of it, but nothing will happen until we get the results of an objective investigation.
1: Kevin, you've been quite quiet. Do you have anything you'd like to talk to the commissioner? I'm going to call you the
0: chief. I don't know what to call but you the chief enough, commissioner. You know, unless I owe you money, then you can call me the have so many things, I don't know where to start. <laughs> no, uh, The commissioner is doing a great job, and you know, I wish I knew you back when I was on the job, and you were on the job. I wish we knew each other. But again, this has been great. You've been very informative, and thank you again for being here
2: with us today. You no,
0: know, Bill's father was a cop, right? He was, he was a housing,
2: housing cop. cop. Right? Yeah, he's he's probably the reason why I went into policing because of the fact he would come in and talk about some of the things that he wanted to do in policing, and it was sort of like, yeah, well, why can't you do that? And he says, well, because I'm not smart enough to pass the sergeant's test. So that was the first goal. And each promotion, while my father was alive. He would call me up and say, all right, you did it again. Now let me see what you're going to do now that you've got this new rank. So if I had people like you and Kevin with me, we probably would still be there making the department run the right way.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: agree. What's interesting is when Kevin was a little boy, I mean, I'm sorry, when Bill was a little boy, I was a young cop in the 79th precinct where he lived,
2: right? (laughs) Halsey between Throop and Sumner, Yes.
1: (laughs) Right. And I was in the 79th Precinct for three years. I came in a job in 1959. You came in about 10 years later, right? Yeah, 68. Yeah. Uh, and it would be interesting. Who knows? Maybe I kicked your butt, you know, when you were a young kid. I, mean, you know, I didn't even know it was you. you, know you <laughs> well,
2: if, if you saw a kid delivering the daily news out of a little red wagon, that was me making money at, at a very tender age. <laughs>
0: No, that's great. And you know that's who great. I became
1: very friendly with? Do you remember Henry Bramwell? Yes. Henry Bramwell was a Republican. It was a rarity. He was a, re- a Republican in that neighborhood, and we became very close, and he became a federal judge later on. And he was a great guy, and, and he sort of mentored me, put me under his wing. He was just a nice, decent guy, you know. So I wanted to tell you that. I figured maybe you were from the neighborhood. Well, it's it's funny. That whole neighborhood
2: was. Would- We call it the Little West Indies because people had migrated there from either Jamaica or Barbados or one of the Caribbean islands. And there were, you know, the pharmacist down the block at at Sumner Avenue, Julian, was a Jamaican. The guy around the corner who who ran the grocery store was from Barbados. And it was a very interesting community because everybody there was looking to be upwardly mobile. And the idea was to establish yourself there and to move to Queens where the rich people were. And if you may remember on Fulton Street, the law firm of Fleury, Gibson, and Thompson?
1: <laughs> yes, well, I remember.
2: Well, Paul Gibson was my uncle who became the first black deputy mayor in the city. George Fleury became a federal judge. And Bill Thompson Sr. is the father of Bill Thompson Jr. who had aspirations of being mayor. So, you know, you got the gene for success out of that neighborhood. And people there were a lot of good people that came out and... and Make contributions to the city because we love the city.
0: You know, Bill. What are your thoughts on possibly the department going patrol anyway, going twelve-hour tours?
2: Way oh man, you Kevin, you were burglarizing my office way back when. What one of the <laughs> things? One of the things that we looked at because I had the five. Remember, I had the five thousand extra cops. So we had twenty-one thousand <laughs> cops, so we were filming all the radio cars. We thought about the fact of doing four twelve-hour tours and letting. And, and letting and giving three or four days off to get cops to rebound, cut down on their commuting, so they you know, could recharge their batteries. And also, when we brought them back, put them on posts. so we'd have people in radio cars switching out of footposts so they wouldn't be answering 911 jobs all the time and kind of switch up on the fact to recharge their batteries and give them a different perspective on, on how the precincts look. I think now, because of the shortage of folks, I think that's a much better idea because you do cut down on the community. You do cut. You give yeah. them an, a, an additional period to rest and be with their families. And I think it would be constructive. I just think that the union and the city government aren't on the same plane as they were back when Lou Matarazzo was the PBA president and Rudy Giuliani was the mayor. You know, it was a different time. That we thought we could have gotten it through then, but for whatever reason it didn't happen, I think now it would be more difficult. But I think it's a great idea.
0: Yeah, I think that's supposedly allegedly that's one of the that's a PBA negotiation right now to negotiate with the city possible 12 hour tours. I think that's real talk right now.
2: Well, that would be great. And the PBA should negotiate a raise and also negotiate to make sure that the retirees don't lose their medical benefits.
0: True. Very true.
2: The PBA has a lot on their plate and, and it's going to be a measure of whether Pat Lynch is the statesman we hope he is by looking out for the retirees, as well as the people that come in. $42,000 as an entry salary for police officers is ridiculous. There is absolutely no reason to pay the best cops in the country, probably one of the worst salaries. So they've got to, they've got to look at that. And, and they clearly have to look at increasing the numbers again. You have to have sufficient number of cops to get the job done without burning out the people that are there.
0: My last note, many of the specialized units say, for instance, the DA squads in the five boroughs, they had 25, 30 detectives. They're down to like four or five detectives. You know, of course, they have an investigative unit, which are retired guys. But as far as active detectives in the squads, they're down to like four or five detectives. And just like other specialized units throughout the job, are down like 50%.
2: You can't run an efficient agency where you don't have people who have an expertise that are allowed <laughs> to use that specialty and that gift to the betterment of the department in the city, and I think we've gotten, you know, we've gotten away from that. But we've also, you know, we, we've also got a hierarchy of some folks who haven't done their time in the trenches the way we did, so they don't have that understanding. You have to have specialization. You also, you know, you have to have patrol and you have to have specialization and a good mix of the two. And when you start taking away, you can't point your fingers at the DAs and say they're not doing the right thing if we're not giving them the investigators to do what needs to be done. And nobody's a
1: better investigator than the detectives in the NYPD, bar none. I agree. Well, Bill, well, in conclusion, we would... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> monopolizing <laughs> your time. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. No, we'd love, we'd love to have you. We want to, great. Have you great. we want to have you back again. But in conclusion, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to say before we conclude?
2: Well, I think... I think that... Police
1: work in general. Police work in the United States. Actually, police police work around the world, internationally uh, and the United States. Well, I,
2: I think the two of you, you and Kevin, represent the best in policing. You've dedicated your entire adult lives to making the people of the city of New York safer. And after, and even after retirement, you still look back at the department that you worked for, dedicated your life to, and love in a sense of helping those who come along afterward. One of the things that I think we are very much I'm very grateful to Dave Scott and Ray Kelly, as are a number of other people, Bill O'Sullivan, Tom Gallagher, a lot of people that I worked for, because they took the time to teach the job the right way, and when you go to say thank you to them, as I did quite often, they said, no, pass that along. I think what needs to be done more than anything else, if you're going to keep policing, as a noble profession that it is, is to make sure that those who have the knowledge now pass it on to those who come afterwards. It makes for a better department, it makes for better executives, and it makes for a city that's safer because they have the absolute best practices historically and currently that you can get. There is no substitute for the lack for police experience. No amount of education, no amount of publicity. You need people that know the job. And for all of those departments out there that are looking at their senior pe- people and thinking, well, they're a little older and slower, yeah. Tom Brady's the best quarterback in football. Had a bad game, but what he knows could help every other quarterback in the NFL. What the retiring people and the senior people in policing know is invaluable. And it's incumbent upon the good managers in the agency to make sure that that knowledge is passed on to those who come afterwards.
1: Well stated. Well I not have done better myself. Well
0: <laughs>
1: Well said. We, we really appreciate your appearance today. We hope to see you again. I know you're going on vacation. Enjoy your vacation and please come back again and enlighten the world about police
0: work.
2: My pleasure. You guys are the best. I'll come back more suntaned and I can tell you about the
0: Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Commissioner. My Thank pleasure. you. Thank you.